Hi, I'm Bill Carmody, and I'm the Marketing Whisperer, and I am thrilled to have one of my favorite people on the planet, Tim Sanders, who is a world-renowned international keynote speaker and the author of his latest book, uh, Deal Storming. Welcome, Tim. How are you? Good to be with you, Bill. I'm doing great, bro. So, so before we begin, I just have to say one thing. Tim, you are directly responsible for my amazing public speaking career because when I saw you the very first time give your keynote speech, I was enamored. I was raptured. I was, I was, I couldn't, I literally picked up a fork to have a bite because it was a lunch session. I was going to have a bite of chicken. And I think I listened for an hour without moving my hand from my mouth and never actually took that bite of chicken because you were just that good. <laughs> so, oh, thank you for saying that. I'm going to refer to that now to the chicken factor. I'm going to ask myself <laughs> if my audience was about to take a bite of chicken, would they actually take the bite of chicken or can I keep them that long on the fork, so to speak? That's awesome. Hanging on the fork. I love it. Thank you so much. So, so I, I got to tell you, I, I, I loved Love is a Killer App. I love that you've had many great books, many successful uh, publications that I've really enjoyed. This is one of my favorites. The thing about I love about deal storming and why I put it at the top is because I think it sort of breaks down a lot of the sort of uh, areas that I think people don't truly understand in the sense that, you know, I look at salespeople as, you know, a lot of these folks are like, hey, we're sort of warrior of one, right? I got to go out there and put my flak jacket on, I got to go get the deals done. And I can't tell you how often I see that. And what you've done is you've turned this whole thing on its head by saying, no, no, it's the collaboration. It's bringing people in who are going to service the account at the time of the deal that really makes a difference. Let's kick that off there. Let's talk about deal storming because I think it's a powerful concept. You know, the, the, the idea you just put forward is so important. And that is the days of the lone wolf selling to one or two addressable decision makers belly to belly where the lone wolf gets to have the big reveal, those days are like over. Yeah. Today, we're selling to networks, we're selling to committees, we're selling to very loosely stitched together teams of decision makers and end users and influencers and gatekeepers. And to quote one of my favorite generals, Stanley McChrystal in his book, Team of Teams, it takes a network to defeat a network. And I think that's the premise behind deal storming. Deal storming is a process where you put together a team around a big sales challenge, mm -hmm. and it's a diverse team based on who has a stake in the outcome or expertise about the problem, and this team collaborates and shares work to solve the sales challenge. And it is like brainstorming, except the ground rules are different, the structure is different, but the concept is the same, and that's harnessing the power of group intelligence to improve our level of perspective make us faster at solving every problem in sales and marketing. You know, I had a, uh, an amazing opportunity to speak with one of the heads of sales for LinkedIn, and obviously they're focused very much on social selling. And I couldn't mm -hmm. help as I'm reading your book thinking, you know, well, LinkedIn may be an amazing platform for social selling. Your book is the how-to guide, <laughs> basically step-by-step. Step, how do you actually do social selling effectively? And I think that's really, yep. it's not just having the tools of a LinkedIn platform where you can see who you could actually sell to, but how do you connect your teams and how do you make sure your teams are talking to the teams of the prospects you're trying to get after you know that's right that's right you know LinkedIn's a great resource I've been using it more and more I've got to say but let's talk a little bit about that so when I think about the game of sales especially in B2B which I know a lot of you are involved in think of it like a video game where you got to move through these four levels right so the first level is what you got to make contact you got to make that first initial contact inside a company that gets you to some people that can give you enough intelligence to figure out if it's a product prospect fit, 
right. what their real need is, what the product selection should be. And you move to that second phase, I call it conceive, where you figure out what the deal looks like. You go through the third stage, if you will, of the game, it's convince, and then the final stage, the hardest one is always the contract, right? Mm -hmm. So social selling is about hacking the first layer, the first stage that's contact, right? So, so in the book I talk about how you've got to assume this persona to be a creative person in sales and marketing, right? So whenever you face a sales challenge, one of these three personas will always save you, the hacker, the chef, and the artist. Right. So the hacker takes an unexpected approach that is often not thought about before, it's a blue ocean if you will, and they make contact where others fail. Mm -hmm. That's what social selling did. Mm -hmm. You know, when you couldn't drop by anymore and set an appointment, when you couldn't call because no one answered their phone, when you couldn't email because you went in the spam filter, somehow you discovered that when I work, reach out to you in social and I like one of your comments, I share one of your posts, I interact with some of your stuff, then all of a sudden I can send you a LinkedIn message that you'll actually answer. And it's just a hack. Right. And it's a good one. And it's been really helping us think differently about prospecting, but it has a shelf life. And that's the another, another important part of deal storming is that the shelf life for every one of our sales and marketing tactics is getting shorter. People have heard it all before. Their access to the World Wide Web allows them to do their own research. So they find out almost everything that we're about to tell them that relates to their problem or our set of solutions or what's really going on in the market. So we've got to be faster and more innovative at bringing new approaches to the market. So I tell a lot of people now in sales and marketing, if you're living on social selling, you better either figure out 3.0 or what comes next because there's going to be a saturation point when the user knows they're being socially sold and that's when it's going to go in the same pile as do not call and spam and everything else. Well, and I think that's what's happening right now is people are starting to spend more time on LinkedIn. They're starting to get more and more people to request that, hey, can we connect? And when you start like, I don't know you, and suddenly that sort of gets outside of the trusted network, those hacks are going to be less and less effective. You know, but I think, yeah, yeah the, the one I'll mention is that, you know, where most social selling takes place is this interaction. So maybe mm -hmm. you buy Sales Navigator and you build this core list of prospects and you kind of troll them, so to speak, but in a positive way. Sure. And you kind of look at all their comments and you kind of start off soft, you like something, you share something, maybe you comment, but it's positive and it adds to. What if LinkedIn changed their system mm -hmm. so that you could only do that if they've already connected with you? What would that do to social selling? What if you first had to make a connection before you could engage with their content? You know, people say, well, that would never happen. Really? Talk to me about those e-commerce companies that went out of business because Google made one change yep. Yep. to page rank. Same thing's going to happen. So my point about social, it's great, great idea. It's a moving target, though. Right. It's always a moving target. That's why genius is a team sport, and we've got to get back into the room and think innovatively to stay one step ahead of game. Well, so so one of the things that was I was particularly attracted to in your book was really talking about sort of who are the people that have to service the deal after the deal is done, and the idea of pulling them into the process. Because I think this is one of the areas where the the sales, the typical salesperson who is trying to do it in isolation, you know, they're thinking about what are my numbers, how can I close, how can I get to that next deal and these larger deal opportunities you're just not going to close in that way and so That's the right. idea is bringing in that that genius if you will earlier in the process and say okay what do we need to know about security what do we need to know about finance what do we need to know about the process well legal all those different pieces help us think that through before we go into the room so we can That's make right. sure that we're making our pitch we're buttoned up 
So here's the philosophy. Collaboration should be your first response, not your last resort. Mm. You know, I go into these companies I consult to and they say, well, our sales team talks to the engineer. I go talk to the engineer and I say, I show them the four levels, you know, of the game. Yes. And I say, what, which level are you being brought in at? And they always point to the top, like we were about to go to contract. They'd already said yes. There was this customization piece they'd promised and they needed to bring me in to decode how that would actually look. And of course I can't do it. Right. But I'm a, you know, and you get that Plus all Plus it's already been sold in, so good so, luck. So we gotta figure it out. So they're bringing them in at the last resort. So, so the, the way I think about it is when you bring in people who are impacted by not only the sale, but the sales process, yes. what you promised. Yes. If you bring them in early when it's a sales challenge instead of late when it's a delivery crisis, they're going to be a whole lot more engaged, a lot more innovative, a lot more cooperative. And guess what? They're going to feel a little bit of ownership sure. of the deal. Uh, there's a story I tell in the book about Mark Schmitz. Uh, uh, he was at Ariba and now he's at SAP Cloud. And he said that when they would get stuck on certain deals where they would know there's a pricing issue or maybe there's an issue on payment that affects revenue recognition, et cetera, and he'd know that somewhere along the way there's going to be a finance-related issue, he brings them in immediately, like right after content and discovery, right? So we know, okay, there's going to be a finance issue, and it's early stage. Mm -hmm. He says, if you bring in finance to look at those issues early, if you bring operations and delivery to look at these things early, he says, you can turn the police into the pep squad. Okay. <laughs> because, because, you know, what you have to understand is that in most organizations, sales is everybody's internal customer. You know sure. what I mean? It's sort of like everybody is a shared service to sales who funnels the money up to the C-suite. And, and that's just the way everybody treats everybody in those shared services organizations. So when sales reaches out proactively, I'll use this example, to marketing. Mm -hmm. They reach out to marketing and they say, we need your marketing genius because we're having a really hard time in a positioning situation against a specific competitor or a set of competitors. I've got a client right now that's dealing with that. And the first thing I asked them is, well, have you gone and talked to marketing? And there was like, that's not really how it works here, right? It's like marketing reaches out to us and gets some specs and they deliver programs and collateral to us and then we let them know if it's good. Um, I said, no, 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 you need to bring them in not to create something for you, but to partner with you mm -hmm. on solving a problem and it changes everything. In the book I talk about how MHI Global did research on what they call the world-class sales organization. This is an organization that outperforms their rivals by an average of 20% across key metrics like closing ratio and market coverage and things like that. And when MHI Global looked into what they all had in common, guess what, Bill? It wasn't quality of product. Hmm. It wasn't strength of leadership. A lot of those companies had almost a revolving door, really, compared to like a GE. The only thing those companies all had in common that were at the top is there was a conscious habit of sales and marketing to collaborate over strategic deals or crisis accounts. And not only did they win, but they won in the right way. It set a tone and it changed the culture of those organizations. So all of a sudden, product began to reach out to sales, which never happened before. Mm -hmm. Service started to talk directly to finance and operations, and it reduced their repeat service effect. In other words, collaboration spread through all their companies. Their delivery got better. Their renewals got better. And it wasn't just because they closed more. It's because they were able to create more value through this group genius. And that's an amazing discovery You know, I made early on in researching this book, is that if we can figure out how to put the and in sales and marketing, 
Right. Then we are full force in the market. We're not just demand generation and lead capture on this side. It's really different. It's about thinking about two different perspectives, sometimes three, sometimes four, that you bring to bear on a situation and you make startlingly breakthrough discoveries. Well, and, and I think most companies would agree with that, you know, living in these silos is not effective or productive in the business. But I think what your book does is it really talks about what's the process of how you break them down. So, you know, if you have a HR function and you think that there's a, a people related issue on the project at hand, you know, you bring them in early. If you think that there's a potential finance deal where, look, they might love our stuff, but they can't afford it. How do we make the financial terms different than what's in our contract? Or legally, we know that there's going to be an issue with this particular term and the contract going into it. What can we do proactively? All yep. those things just means you are a true leader. We even, yep. you know, whatever, no matter what your title says, you're leading a team to ensure victory. And that is what a leader does, you know? That's right. That's right. And, and you make a good point here is that, you know, you've got these silos and organizations. And they're just protective. That's why they're called silos. Right. As long as companies organize around budgets, there's a slight internal competition. Sure. And you really can't do much about that if you have budgets and you have limited resources, right? Um, but you can build underground tunnels between the silos, and you do it one important project at a time, right? That's so great. my message to a lot of people in sales or to entrepreneurs is ask yourself who has a stake in the outcome and the process. Who has a stake in what we promise, how we sell, and whether we win? You'd be surprised who has a stake in that, right? Yeah. A lot of people do. Finance might have a stake in arbitrage. Service and delivery has a huge stake in you know, service and delivery. Marketing might have a big stake in terms of their positioning work, their voice mm -hmm. of the customer work, mm -hmm. other strategic work they're doing. Operations might have a stake. For some of you that work with third parties like OEMs or publishing networks, for example, they have a huge stake and we never tap them enough and they're on the ready to help us succeed. So that's how you have to think when you get stuck in a big opportunity. But let's back up for a second. Sometimes, and I talk about this in the book, you know that you're in a complicated sales situation going in stage one. Right. So I talk about this company, Videology. Um, some of you might know Videology. They're very good at optimizing your video between online and offline. But anyway. They're a very complicated set of services um, run by a genius, and they're trying to sell Comcast, which mm -hmm. is one of their investors. Mm -hmm. So they go into Comcast, and they know, okay, it's a bureaucracy. It's not digital first. Right. It uses a different set of metrics to measure video ad performance. All these things they knew going in politically, structurally, economically were highly complicated. So they didn't wait till they got stuck. They deal stormed from the get-go because it was a big opportunity where they pulled in and said, okay, who do we got to get? And so one of the things they figured out right away is that Comcast being a not digital first company was going to have a really hard time understanding what in the heck videology did. Right. So they kind of scratched their head and kind of hunted around thinking, who's the best at the company at explaining what we do? Well, really, at a small company like Videology, it's going to be the recruiter. Right. Yeah, that's right. The HR recruiter was the <laughs> one they bring in. And he's like, oh, when I'm recruiting an engineer out of wherever, um, I explain that we're like a mall, right? And you've got the publishers on one end, think about it as Macy's, and you've got you know all the um, actual uh, users on the other end, think of that as Neiman Marcus, and then everything in between, all these specialty stores are things like content design and publishing analysis, et cetera. And then there's a little food court with all the creative, and that's what videology manages. That's awesome. HR so as hero. Goes, <laughs> the guy goes, that's great. So they create a visual of that when they go into the meeting with Comcast. Comcast says, what do you do? Instead of giving them some engineer speak, they kind of paint them a picture about how they kind of sit 
in between the publishers and the audience and they manage all these different necessary services to optimize video. And um, that's a really neat example. I have another company that's much, much bigger. And when they were in a similar situation, they went to the um, investor relations group. And they said, when you talk to fund managers, what do you tell them about what we do? Because we got 16 strategic business units and they don't all clearly seem to be connected. And they said they had a unique way. It was a company that was involved in industrial supplies, but they realized, oh, we help OEMs assemble things. Oh, wow, never thought of it that way. So you'd be surprised who is the expert inside your company, which is the second question you ask yep. about your problem. So find the stakeholders, identify an expert or two, and you've got a deal storm team. So, so let me let me ask you one last question here because I think what's really interesting about deal storming is it's not just about marketing and sales and whatnot. There's also another aspect that I think entrepreneurs really like, which is even about funding. How do we get funded? What's the best way right. to get money, right? So same thing. I mean, when you think about going into a venture capital company or even an angel investor, you're moving through the same four stages. You got to get contact. You got to figure out what that term sheet might look like or what they're going to hook into that makes you strategic to their portfolio. You got to convince them that you got traction, that you're investable. And then you got to figure out the contract, right? It's the same game and it's getting more complicated. VCs are much more sophisticated. The number of influencers and decision makers and standing board members is increasing exponentially. So you need to use the same process. And this deal storming method is just as good for fundraising. It's just as good for small businesses too. And this is the thing I learned, Bill, from doing a couple of gigs, say for architects and engineers, is that even though they're firms of four and 10, they're very collegiate. So they use conferences like SMPS to create these standing collaboration alliances that says, okay, Judy in Baltimore, I'm Craig in Las Vegas, and if we ever get stuck in a disability project on design, mm -hmm. we're gonna reach out to you. But hey, if you ever get stuck on a marketing positioning thing with Hispanic market, you reach out to us because we're experts at that. And I see that sometimes the smaller companies can still stitch together pretty powerful teams, and that's a winning hand because they are naturally more agile than big companies. So when they get creative ideas, they don't have to get a lot of permissions to put them to work right away. Love it. Listen, Tim Standers. So Tim, uh, your book, Deal Storming, absolutely fantastic. Uh, I will tell you that uh, if for anyone who wants to close more deals, it's not about sort of working harder and spending more hours as sort of your own silo. It's digging those underground tunnels, get, recruiting the team members that have the most to gain with the sales that you're working on, and absolutely use deal storming to effectively close more deals. I love it. Thank you very much. And if you want to download a free chapter, it's called Sales Genius is a Team Sport. Just visit dealstorming.net front slash free. Dealstorming.net front slash free. Excellent. Tim, thank you so much for being on the program today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure. <laughs>